So welcome back to the Depressed Salesman podcast. Today we're going to have another interesting conversation about the intersection of sales results and mental health and well-being. Super excited today. We have a great guest, uh, Warren Smith from Smith Legal Searches. And uh, we are uh, very interested to uh, to hear from, from Warren. He's a lawyer by trade. Uh, he's definitely a salesperson, but he has a, a unique role uh, in the executive search industry. Uh, so welcome, Warren. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Michael. Pleasure to be here with you today. So what can I tell you about myself and about my firm? So I'm a, a recovering lawyer, I think, as every uh, legal recruiter on the planet will probably classify themselves as. I've been in the business for 20 years now, and uh, for the last three, I've been running my own firm, Smith Legal Search. And prior to that, I had been with one of the big national firms. And for a number of reasons, which we may get into today, uh, made the decision to venture out on my own with my team. And we've since expanded to be across Canada. We've got offices in Vancouver, Calgary, and Toronto. And really what we focus on is hiring legal talent. So lawyers specifically for whether it's general counsel or partners or you know, law firms looking to open offices or, you know, add practice groups. That's a lot of what we spend our time on day to day. So it's a, it's a very interesting space. Uh, I'm super nerdy about it. Uh, I'm probably one of six people who find it deeply interesting. So I'm happy to add a seventh and maybe some of uh, your followers will, will gain some interest in uh, why legal recruiting is one of the most in interesting sales careers you can embark upon. So I'm happy to chat about that today with you. How do you, I mean, you, you go to uh, university and, and become a lawyer at what point in in your journey do you decide that you, you're not necessarily going to practice law and you're gonna you're gonna go into the executive search end of it? Well, I think um, if you're asked my parents, they would have said far too soon, uh, and if okay. you're asked my wife, she would say not soon enough. So <laughs> uh, we know where the die cast on that one. Obviously, I listened to my wife. Uh, I, I, for me, I, I was, uh, I would describe myself as an accidental lawyer. I, I think like a number of people huh. you do an undergrad in political science. Uh, you definitely left with, well, what the heck do I do with that degree when you come to the end of that one? And I think like a lot of people in political science, uh, one of the most common paths people look at is uh, going into law. And so for me, yeah. Coming up to the end of my undergrad, a lot of my friends in undergrad were studying for this thing called the LSAT. And uh, I was like, well, what's an LSAT? Okay. And so, you know, started chatting with them about it. And I thought, oh, what the heck, uh, I'll write the, the the LSAT with them. I think I looked at an exam before before I took it and, and wrote it, didn't think anything of it. And of course, they all cursed me because I think at the end, I was the only one that got into law school. Come on. So yeah, they were like, really? Is that That's what happened here? So um, I, I ended up in law school a little bit by accident. And like, funnily enough, when I got the acceptance package, I got accepted to a couple of the, the universities in Canada. I was actually with uh, the girl I was dating at the time. And I was I was visiting with them. And um, I think my aunt actually got the package and she phoned me and she said, hey, so I got this package from the university. You want me to read you the letter? So I literally found out, you know, sort of over a phone call from my aunt reading off this piece of paper and, uh, and I was like, oh, that's exciting. And I think she was more excited than I was. And the girl's parents that I was dating were even more excited than, than yeah. about this than I was. And so I think everybody was like, well, you're absolutely going to go to law school, right? And I was like, I guess so. And so I actually ended up phoning the, the admissions office. And I was like, um, 
if I don't want to go, like, can I like defer it for a year? Or like, when do I have to make a decision? And they're like, no, you can't defer it. You actually have to take it now. Otherwise you have to reapply next year. And the, uh, the admissions officer actually made a very compelling case and said, look, like, why don't you just go for a year? Like, if you don't like it, you can always go off and do a master's or a PhD or do something else. But, um, you know, if, if you do like it, then at least you've you got your foot in the door and away you go. So that's how I ended up in law school. And, you know, I think, frankly, that's part of the reason why, you know, I went through it. And I, I liked law school and I did well and I ended up at one of the big firms. But I, it wasn't sort of one of those things where I would have told you, you know, from 15 years of age, I knew I was going to be a lawyer, notwithstanding my Japanese mother probably would have liked to have seen that. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I kind of got there and went, okay, this, this is good, um, but, but maybe there's other things out there. So that's how we ended up where we are. So, I mean, we're, we're sitting here recording uh, a podcast in two different hemispheres and you get uh, your notification of law school, someone reading you a, uh, uh, a typed letter, most likely over a landline yes. phone call. Correct. And how things have changed. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a crazy world. How fast things change, for sure. So, what made the decision to leave the firm and and move into executive search? Then. So I I, I think in my case, part of how that came about was I liked, but I didn't love the practice of law. Um, and so for me, it was just starting to ask questions of people I knew, mostly people that had been in a professional services role. So been a lawyer, been an accountant, but had switched into a business role with a corporation because I thought maybe that might be the, the route to go. And not knowing how to make that leap, I just started asking folks questions about how did you make that leap? It's a, I mean, it's interesting because it's a very classic piece of advice I give people now, 20 years later, in terms of how do you figure out what's the right path and are there people out there that are doing things you might want to do and often that's a good you know sort of starting point for those kinds of conversations so when i went through that process a lot of those folks suggested connecting with their recruiter that part of how they had made the shift was by using a headhunter uh, who had identified or opened a role um, you know or door for them in their career and that's how they made the transition so um, from there, that's how I started my conversation and exploration of the market. And, you know, I think that one of the things that happened along the way, and it was interesting because it happened with unerring accuracy was, I think to a person, every headhunter I spoke with about two thirds of the way through the conversation said, you know, you should really think about a career in recruitment. You've got the right disposition. You've got the right temperament for it. And so, that's kind of what started it. And a number of those shops actually then called me back to interview for a role with their firm. And so one thing led to another. And is that the first um, <clears throat> in, in quotes sales experience that you had in your career? Or did you have other sales roles before that? No, I, I, I had done a, a, actually a fair bit of sales roles previously. Um, you know, I think that one of the things that you know, I had done leading up to law school and, and sort of even an undergrad was I had done a series of sales roles, probably, you know, I think I think it's actually sort of one of the first roles I'd ever done was in timeshare sales, which is a, kind of a, you know, you want to talk about an all in sales role. That's about as, as crazy as it gets. I had done uh, some cell phone sales. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of what were some of the other I did some telemarketing. 
you know, hmm. you want to you want to learn sort of the hard skills of cold calling, you know, door knocking, you know, really sort of doing just the the real outreach piece. Some of those pieces, you know, I think really set you up well. Like I think those are very difficult sales positions to master. But if you can get comfortable with them, I think particularly if you can get over that fear of, you know, making the disruptive call, you know, building out your network, just getting into the habit of making your 30 or 40 calls every day, whatever the number happens to be. Some some places it's higher. Um, you know, that that's the do the work part of the business, you know, that yeah, I, I don't know that there's a shortcut on that. Um, and I think that it's a conversation I have with my recruiters, honestly, every week uh, about the do the work part. There isn't a shortcut on that. Over time, obviously, your your skill gets better and your network you know, gets better with its reach and your role starts to evolve. But I've yet to meet a successful recruiter, at least, that did not spend some number of years at the front end of their career just honing that craft, you know, because there's, there's, there's no shortcut in my experience with that. I, I assume that um, as fundamentals, uh, all of those skills that you developed in multiple different sales roles are used uh, through, throughout your, your career today still. But how often do you, do you directly link them? How, how often does it cross your mind that, that what you learned while you were um, selling timeshares or cell phones directly relates to what you're doing in this meeting at that moment? Does it ever come up for you? I, I think from a fundamentals perspective, it comes up surprisingly regularly. Um, I think that there is a... There is a series of truths around how a sales funnel operates that are true whether you're selling lumber, cell phones, or careers. Like I, I think that there are things you learn fundamentally about human nature, about how and when they buy, how much agency they need to have in order to be comfortable making a decision. I have a particular style um, that works well for me. I know there are you know, people out there that are perhaps a little bit more on the high pressure drive sales model. I tend to be a very low pressure agency driven sale. It's a relationship model. Uh, it's not to say that I, I'm not laser focused on how to get deals done, but mm -hmm. my style has always been to give the person the choice, You know, to say, look, ultimately you have to be committed to the decision, not me. And it's understanding why is this in your best interest first? Um, my, it might be in my best interest as well, but that's not the deciding feature. It must be in your best interest first in order for any deal to come together. Now, it might be incumbent on me as a salesperson to help you understand where the benefits lie and what some things you may not be considering in evaluating it. But ultimately, if I can't frame any opportunity, in my case, you know, sort of career decisions or, you know, sort of, you know, hiring decisions around why this is your you know best decision as opposed to my best decision i don't think any deal has any any longevity without that piece so those are things that you you learn by necessity in sales but i think that to me one of the advantages of i would say sort of shorter event horizon higher pressure quicker turnaround sales cycles is you learn very quickly how to understand where the other person is at in their process mm -hmm. um, so for me that's been that's been integral like that's that's a i would say i don't know I actually am very confident I wouldn't have been nearly as good as I've been able to be in my role if I hadn't had that foundational training. Hmm, interesting. I, uh, I I'm I'm really uh, <laughs> intrigued by kind of the crossover. Like you talk about 
stylistic choices of selling, um, what your style is, what your approach is versus, you know, a competitor or, or someone in, in another role. Um, so the art of selling, that artistic nature that is necessary to build relationships and to, to have interaction with other human beings and potentially close deals has to cross over with the systemized process, like the, the series of inputs that have to happen, the work that you were talking yeah. about, speaking to your recruiters about. That's something that I've I've really, and maybe it's a different industry that I've that I've come from, you know, more in the building trades, but the process of it is not something that most of my clients and competitors, coworkers have focused on as compared to the art. You know, I, I've come across people that sell millions, tens of millions of dollars in a year. And I question the true understanding that they have about selling the first dollar. You know, and it, it it has to become this repeatable process. And even at the point that you're at in your business, you, you've seen a lot of growth. I assume that you want to see more, you know, the process and having having these new people that come on board, understanding the requirement for the inputs that actually drive the results yeah. has as much to do with success as their artistic nature as a salesperson. Yeah, I, I mean, I think anytime you see, uh, frankly, any success for any extended period of time, the probability that it's luck goes down. Does that make sense? Agreed. Like, Agreed. I think anytime you can see something that's repeatable over an extended period of time, the probability that person is running a hot streak is near zero, right? Yes. And so my my general philosophy on, frankly, everything in life is if I see patterns like that, I'm just naturally curious to know why. Like, why is that person able to sustain and repeat that level of success over a long period of time? Even if they're not conscious of it, I guarantee you there's something they're doing that's very right, that's allowing them to have that level of success. Do you know what I mean? But that's what becomes so striking is, is how few people seem to be conscious of it themselves. You know, that, and I, so, I assume that's a massive competitive advantage for you to be able to so recognize I, that in people. I think, so my view on that, Michael, is, is that that is classically the difference between a great salesperson and a great business owner, right? That uh, I, I think that a great salesperson can be so naturally talented at what they do, but they've never had to think about how do I train someone else to do it? They just know how to be the way that they are that lets them do the sales that they do. And they may be self-aware on parts of it, but they may not be self-aware on other parts. So that ability for them to take a junior under their wing and say, okay, I'm going to teach you how to do this may be limited. They might be able to create a 60% facsimile, maybe an 80% facsimile, but to create a 100% or a 95% where they can really start to scale, that's rare, right? And I think that whenever you come across somebody who actually figures out how to like really capture the essence of what they do so well, that to me is what separates, you know, what I call craftsmen versus empire builders, right? That the craftsman is someone who's so good at what they do that they're really irreplaceable in their market. And that can be true, whether it's, you know, in flooring sales, whether that's in car sales, whether it's a realtor, right? Like that person 
is really good and they will always have people come to their door because people will say, I got the guy, like my guy can do this better than anyone else. Mm -hmm. But the, the empire builder is the one that says, I'm building, you know, the blue man group and every piece is interchangeable because I've created it so consistently that when you come to, you know, pick a brand, you're going to get the same experience every single time. And it's going to be a very high quality experience. It's why, you know, in, in our world, Corn Ferry is a repeatable experience, right? And that's not to take anything away from the search providers that are at that firm. There's great executive search partners at Corn Ferry. They're one of the biggest brands in the world. But for much of the, you know, Fortune 100, the reason they're hiring is not because Jeff in Chicago, I'm making that up, is yeah. the single greatest recruiter in that market. They might be, but it's partly that, but it's also, this is a brand that creates a consistent, repeatable experience and that somewhere along the line, the, you know, the powers that be inside of a, whether it's a corn ferry or a Hydric struggles or a Russell Reynolds, like they've figured out how to map that and repeat that. And that becomes incredibly valuable as a brand. So mm -hmm. to me, that's the, that's the empire builder. And I think in a lot of businesses, often the greatest salesperson is the person that runs the business. They're, they're the, you know, the craftsman and where they often get stuck is, how do I take everything I've learned and teach five people, 10 people? And how do I teach those people to teach other people so that I can properly create, you know, a, a brand that can be sold beyond just the limitations of my time? Does that make sense? Oh, it definitely makes sense. Uh, and those are some great um, descriptive explanations, the craftsman versus the empire builder. That's that's a really cool way to look at it. Um there's two things that you've brought up uh, that that I want to touch on. One is the understanding as a salesperson of where the potential client is at their point in the journey, being yeah. able to comprehend that. To me, that's a lot of the psychology of selling. And yeah. I find it interesting how you, you can literally find thousands upon thousands of, of pieces of literature, uh, courses, videos on the psychology of sales. And yet there's very little on the psychology of the salesperson. Like all of this interaction that we have, um, it, it has an effect on us in the role that, that we're having. And there's there's very little that's been looked at or talked about on that effect that it has on the salesperson and how that can be improved. Um, so, so that's definitely something that I wanted you to touch on. If you've got any thoughts on that. I, I, I do think that a big part of getting comfortable in sales is recognizing that the rejection is not to you, obviously. Uh, the rejection is to the product or the proposition you're making. And I think for a lot of people, frankly, that's one of my bright line tests in the first 90 days is can you can you manage that rejection, right? Like how comfortable are you making those calls? How comfortable are you, you know, dealing with a, you know, maybe a 5%, 10% conversion rate on those discussions, right? So I think until people understand that part of the cycle, whether that's in recruitment or any form of sales, I think that's honestly the big part of what separates people that can do this job versus people that can't. 
And, and in my business, I, I regularly see people that love all the other aspects of the role. They love the strategy. They love the engagement. They love the counseling aspect, particularly in the recruitment, the career advisory component, the long-term strategy discussions. Like those are all things that I think, frankly, for a lot of lawyers, they love because it's a very human interaction and it's got a, a very sort of, you know, nuanced intellectual pursuit. But if you can't first get to, you know, that initial stage of, how comfortable am I being disruptive, making calls, asking people if they'd be open to considering alternative career options, you know, that that real sort of baseline sales skill set. If you can't get to first base, you can never come home, right? So it's kind of the precondition. Do, do you think that it's as simple as you either have it or you don't? Like what what the question that I have around the failure rates of sales. Yeah. And, you know, I, as a sports analogy, it comes up for me a lot is that Hall of Fame baseball hitters yeah. are failing 70% of the time. Yeah. You know, the best in the history of the planet. Um, only a three out of 10 success rate. Sales is lower than that in most cases, I think. And yeah. so. Is it just as simple as you need to be able to handle that and not have that affect you psychologically? Or is there tricks and tools that you learn along the way that allow you to get over? There's no way there isn't a, a, a cost to, to your state of mind or your well-being being rejected constantly. Uh, so... My experience is th the three things I'm looking for when I'm hiring a new recruiter, so essentially a new salesperson, I'm looking for coachability. Are they, are they coachable, first and foremost? Um, are they self-starting? Do they have the ability to do things of their own accord they don't need to be managed? And three, can they make phone calls? Like, can they make that disruptive call? And so... I think in that sense, I'm answering your question on, I believe those are innate. The rest mm -hmm. of it I can work with, but if you are not coachable, then I can't help you get better. And so that limits your growth potential, your ceiling. If you aren't a self-starter, then I can't ever see a world where you're gonna be able to build something to call your own. And I think that's a huge limiting feature of anybody that's, because sales ultimately is a self-directed profession. Um, and three, are, do you have that ability to go into the uncomfortable place, right? Like, and I, that was born out of, I'm sure, some book I read that says you get paid for doing things other people can't or won't do. That's what is the core of why you get paid to do quite literally anything on the planet, right? And so the thing that salespeople do that others can't or won't is they make that call. They, they do that disruptive thing that for so many people on the planet, it's so uncomfortable, they will go to great lengths to do everything but that one thing. And so there's different ways to get to that, you know, sort of baseline or that base camp of where you've got a network that sort of has a pulse and sort of carries you in a market. But find me a salesperson that has had any modicum of success and a 100% of the time, they will have gone through some period at the beginning of their career where they had to do those uncomfortable, build their network from the ground up and start you know, forming their own relationships. Because I've never met somebody that's got any sort of long-term lasting success in these kinds of businesses that doesn't have that skill buried somewhere at the start of their career. Yeah, no, I think that you're right about that. Uh, you know, there's 
there's a lot of challenging components of the job, though. Um, the rejection component yep. being one of them. Yep. Um, it's an isolating experience. You know? yep. Like the, the majority of the time, you're alone. You're alone yep. with your thoughts. You're you're physically and figuratively alone by yourself. Yeah. But more than that, you're alone dealing with everything that's happening to you throughout throughout each of the days. You yeah. know, like the the experience of you go from one call to the next call to the next call, and these are completely separate. Yeah. And you have that ability to flip the switch and turn the page. Um, and you can handle whether you were just rejected or successful for that matter and not have it affect the next call. But there, there's a question about how salespeople uh, manage that experience psychologically with the – it's not loneliness. It's, it's isolation that's put on top of it. Nobody really knows what you're experiencing other than you. So I, so I have two thoughts on that. So I, I would agree that, look, I think the, the exercise of sales is ultimately a one-to-one -one relationship. So you're right that any person that is doing sales ultimately is going to be involved in a conversation with them trying to sell something to someone who is a buyer or a potential buyer. And that any long-term successful you know, sales career necessarily involves getting comfortable doing that over and over and over again obviously as your your desk matures or your you know sort of your sales you know you know sort of territory matures some amount of that converts to maintenance and development um, sure. and depending on how your you know portfolio develops you might find yourself after 20 years in a place where you're mostly servicing existing clients and so it takes on a different tenor but let's focus on the first five years of anybody in sales. I think that's the part for most people where they got to learn that craft and it can be tough, right? Cause it's like, you get battered, you get beat up because nobody really cares about the 20 calls you have that don't convert. They only care about the one that does, right? Yeah. And so a lot of what I spend time talking with people when I'm bringing them on in my business is, and I think this is true of anybody in sales, is you have to learn over time that the 19 calls that you make that go nowhere are the precondition for the 20th that go somewhere. Exactly. And, and recognizing that it's a package deal, but that that 20th call might, you know, pay for, you know, the next two months of your rent, just like that. And once you start to make that link in your mind and you go, okay, the reason, you know, I'm doing these 19 is because the 20th is buried because it's a bit of a numbers game. And, and my experience is, is that, every version of sales has a different ratio and you learn what your ratio is based on your business and how competitive it is and where you are and you can improve it and i agree with you you know like the greatest salesperson in the world might be batting 270 you know yeah. or maybe 320 yeah. i don't know maybe they're 400 i don't know that person but you know what i mean and yeah. it's recognizing that showing up is probably going to get you to 200 you know yeah. but getting good at it might get you to three and killing it might get you to four and the, the, the rewards are typically outsized in favor of as you go up that tree and as you get better, and that's the payoff, right? And I think the inputs are as well. I yeah. think it is a subtle difference between the 200 and the 300 yeah. hitter in I, the sales. I, I 100%. Like, 
I have a conversation with my recruiters regularly. So like the common fact pattern is in our business, you know, you can get a deal all the way to the end and they got an offer letter from a, a company in front of them. And, you know, you go in the 11th hour, they change their mind, they don't sign the deal, right? And you're like, oh my goodness, three months of work up in smoke and I can't believe it. Look at like, how did that happen? Yeah. And sometimes, sometimes it literally did happen in the last five minutes. But most of the time, if we were to break it down and rewind the clock, often the issue was buried two months earlier. You know, they made a throwaway comment about, how serious were they? Or were they actually ready to commit? Or were they just, you know, job shopping for the purpose of taking it back to the competitor or going to another shop or taking it back to their own employer, right? Like, yeah. and it's recognizing those little tells, those little, you know, sort of, you know, twitches in their face or, you know, sort of the throwaways, what they say, what they don't say. That to me is what separates the greats from the goods, right? Is that part of that's just, you do a thousand of these, you start to recognize, right? That instinct of, Something doesn't smell right here, or something's a little bit off, or they should have gotten back to me, right? The, I talk about the, the cadence, the speed of engagement, right? That as you get closer to a sale, normal people accelerate. The, the intervals of interaction get shorter and shorter and shorter, right? Sure. And if it stretches, something's happening, something's changed, right? I'm all, and those are the things that try to explain that to somebody in the first 10 deals they've done. It's hard, but a thousand deals in, I'm sure you know, and I'm sure anybody who's been in sales, they know what the cadence is supposed to look like, and they can tell two weeks before the deal's going to close when something's off. Or they can, similar, they can also tell often two weeks up, like, this deal's done. Like, I'm pretty sure it's, we're, we're there. And so I don't know how to treat people or train people on that axis faster. I try to do downloads with my people to say, here's kind of why I thought this was happening. Here's where I think you want to poke and prod. But ultimately, this is going back to the you got to do the work part. There's, there isn't a shortcut, right? Super interesting point of view from Warren Smith. Uh, we're going to pick up again with him next week on our second episode. He's got a lot of really interesting thoughts and uh, perspective, not only on, on sales, but entrepreneurship and how to build and scale your business. Uh, just a really intelligent guy with, with thoughtful uh, points of view that I think will help a lot of us in terms of uh, our results in business. So catch up with us again next week. Uh, just a reminder, check us out at www.thedepressedsalesman.com. And on there, you will find a number of uh, tools that can help you. For example, if, if you happen to be challenged by depression in sales, there is a free download that will give you a number of tips that will help you to overcome that challenge. Uh, you can also find our online course where we are really interested in this intersection between sales results and our mental health and well-being. You know, we're going to help you to identify and leverage your unique strengths and talents, uh, how to systemize a set of inputs based on those talents that will allow you to grow your sales results. Uh, so improving our mental health and well-being improves our sales results and vice versa. And that's what we're all about at The Depressed Salesman. We're trying to shine a light on an area that I don't think is, uh, is focused on enough because these two areas of our lives are directly related to each other. 
So again, catch us next week with the next episode of the Depressed Salesman Podcast. We'll see you then.